Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Um, a couple things before I start. One is, I, I appreciate it if you would keep in prayer the wife of the Afghan refugee family that we are caring for. Uh, if you don't know, we are caring for a family. It's a husband, wife, and three kids, and one that should hopefully be delivered today, so there'll be four of them. So pray. Her name is Bono, so just think of you two, and you'll remember to pray for her. She's a high-risk pregnancy. They induced her last night at 7, and um, appreciate your prayers. And the other thing is, um, after canceling three Israel trips during the pandemic and thinking I'd never do a trip again because it was just so stressful, uh, I actually put another trip on the calendar for next April, right after uh, Easter and Passover. So if you're interested, let me know. It's, got, it's already getting close to, to filled to our capacity. So let me know if you're interested in that. Okay, here we go. People say... And I think it's true that you know you're getting old when you start talking about all your health issues. So if you're over 60, say amen. And, you know, I turned 70 uh, on May 1st, and up until the age of 55, I was still playing pickup basketball games a few times a week, also trail running in between the basketball games. But that all changed when I turned 56 and began to experience some health problems that forced me to... Uh, modify my sports activities. And since then, I've had a few more health problems, uh, some that I would be embarrassed to talk about up here in public, but some of you men know about that stuff. And unfortunately, not unfortunately, fortunately, I'm able to stay in shape, enjoy other activities like pickleball, the fastest growing sport in America. There's actually a pickleball group here. Um, So if you're interested, see those people that are clapping right there in the corner. And they'll let you know. Um, But each time I experience another health problem, I always think to myself, welcome to the new normal, Gene. Well, for two years now, our world's been facing one global problem after another. COVID pandemic, environmental disasters, supply chain delays, stock market losses, inflation, the violent invasion of Ukraine by Russia, an increase in mass shootings, one just a few blocks from here at King Supers, and so many other difficult challenges, too numerous to mention. And with the constant stream of unrelenting problems taking place in the world today, doesn't it seem like we should be also saying, welcome to the new normal? It feels that way, doesn't it? Well, the title of my message today is Welcome to the New Normal, How to Live in the Last Chapter of God's Story. And like the people found in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, we want to be able to understand the times that we are living in. And more importantly, we want to know what we're supposed to be doing during these challenging times. And the parable that we're going to look at today does this very thing for us. But before we dive into this parable, we need to understand the context that's the catalyst for this parable so that we can fully appreciate its meaning and application. It's found in Matthew chapter 24, and this is how it begins. Matthew 24, this is just verse 1 through 3. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. 
Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the age to come? Now, it's obvious that the disciples are troubled by what Jesus is saying to them about the future destruction of the temple that actually did take place 40 years after this discussion. The Jerusalem temple is the center of Jewish life. And so they, they understand that what Jesus is telling them is very sobering and troubling information about the future. And already, already knowing that Jesus is about to lay down his life, he's really close to this point at, at, at this time, they're now curious and they're probably stressed out about what it's going to look like in the world just before he returns. And so they say to Jesus, well, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the question is really like Judaism 101, because although these have been, there's been much suffering and pain and conflict throughout Earth's long history, the hope of Messiah establishing his eternal kingdom where every pain and every tear and every bruise is redeemed and only perfect shalom will reign forever and ever has always been at the forefront of Jewish life. This future hope offers enduring comfort amid human suffering. But what Jesus is about to tell them is some pretty scary stuff. And he's referring to a period of time in the distant future that the Bible often refers to as the last days or the end of age. And speaking about this time, 2 Timothy 3.1 says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Days. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote this. He really knew how to draw people in, didn't he? Hey, looking for a great congregation to be part of? Come join us as we welcome in the most terrible times in earth history. Probably not the greatest. But whenever these times are mentioned in the Bible, they are mentioned, and they're mentioned numerous times, they always speak about a time of great trouble. And so talking about them can be just as scary for us today as it must have been for the disciples back then. But my goal today is not to scare you, okay? My goal is to inspire you to live purposely and courageously today and every day of your life all the way up until your last breath. And so as we look at the scary events mentioned in this chapter, please keep this inspirational goal in mind because that's what our parable will provide for us. And because our time is limited, I'm only going to summarize some of these events. Jesus says in the last days there'll be wars and the threat of wars. There'll be environmental disasters. There'll be believers persecuted and martyred. There'll be great falling away of believers from the faith. There'll be a great many of believers deceived and many false messiahs will show up. And he includes this sobering statement in verse 12 through 13, he says that because of the increase of wickedness, meaning evil, because of the increase of evil in the world, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, please notice 
that it says the hearts of most people will grow cold. Not some, not a few, not many, but most people. And we're talking about such an increase of evil in the world that it'll be almost impossible to keep our hearts from cooling off. And then as if it's not enough, Jesus says in verse 8, these are just the beginning of birth pains. Now raise your hand if you've ever given birth. Come on. Okay, there's a couple men. That's okay, I guess times are changing quickly here. Now every woman in this courtyard who's ever given birth knows exactly the point Jesus is making here. Because ladies, you know that once those contractions of birth begin, it's now going to be a long and painful road as your contractions increase in length and strength more and more all the way up until your baby is finally birthed. Now, I'll never forget the birth of our first kid. Andrew and I went to um, birthing classes. We learned how to breathe. You know how you do it? And so we were ready. And so when, when Andrea went into labor and I'm there in the room with her and the contractions come, I remind her, honey, you know, let's, let's just breathe. But then the contractions got stronger and stronger. And I'll never forget at one point. How many people have seen the movie The Exorcist? Okay. You know where the little girl's head spins around and she spews out green slime? By the way, that, that movie was written by William Peter Blatty, and he lived in the city I lived in when I was in high school. I was really good friends with his daughter, Mary Jo. That was a weird family. Okay. But there's this time where Andrea's got these really intense contractions going, and I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, honey, breathe. And I just saw her face just, like, change, and she looks at me, and she said... I don't want to breathe. <laughs> and I just kind of backed off like, whoop. All these terrible events that Jesus mentions are just the beginning of birth pains, the early stages of problems in the world that will progressively get more and more intense as time goes on. And then just to make sure that no one will have to guess as to whether or not these terrible events are really the ones that he's talking about in this chapter. He concludes in verse 21 saying that the distress will be unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Wow. And so you'd think that it would be obvious to everyone when this happens since these events will unfold in an unprecedented degree. Never experienced before, never will be experienced again. And yet, even so, Jesus goes on to say in verse 37 and 38 that most everyone will still be in denial when the end of God's story begins to draw near. And he compares this denial to the people in Noah's day who were in denial that the day, in the days leading up to the flood. Here's what it says. This is verse 37, 39. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be coming 
So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And listen to this. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, I imagine that what Jesus is saying here is that the flood back in Noah's day didn't just happen in a matter of minutes or hours or even days. It started out with like just a drizzle that led to some maybe some minor flooding and it became a steady downpour with widespread flooding and eventually it became a torrential downpour with severe flooding. And we also know that God magnified it by opening up the ground to release the aquifers from below the earth. And I imagine at some point in this flooding process that there were some who were starting to say to themselves, wow, when is this craziness ever going to end? It just seems to be unrelenting. Just like many of us today are thinking the same thing, when is this all going to stop? And so as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days just before Jesus returns. And so even though there will be unprecedented trouble in the world, Jesus says he will come like a thief in the night when we least expect him. And so to prevent us from being caught off guard, Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 42, Therefore... Keep watch, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. Now, honestly, I sincerely hope that all the troubling things taking place in our world today will soon begin to turn around, and that we're not headed for more trouble. But unless you hold a high, you don't hold a high um, value that the Bible is the word of God, you do realize that there has to be a generation that goes through this time, right? And let's be honest with each other for a moment, okay? Do you see things turning around anytime soon? Do you see the world going back to whatever normal was anytime soon? Because every time we read in the headlines, we read about some new trouble taking place while the old ones still haven't gone away. And everything just seems to keep multiplying. Can you say monkey pox? And we seem to be stuck in an unrelenting cycle of compounded events. Now, in my mind, when God created the universe, he put his hands around it. He's got big hands. And he gave just a little bit of space. What's that space for? It's for Satan to do his work. Just like when he had that conversation with Job. You can do this to Job, but that's it. You can't go beyond this. And that's what God says to Satan about the world. He is the prince of this world. His role in God's story and he's a character in it, just like we all are, is to be our nemesis. But he can only go so far. And as I read the scriptures, that when we get closer to the end of God's story, 
God begins to retract his hands even more and evil or wickedness increases. By the way, since Jesus warned that most hearts will go cold, let me ask you, how's your heart? Let me ask you who are, are watching this stream, how's your heart? How's it affecting you? How are all the events of the last couple of years affecting you? How's it affecting your relationships? How's it affecting your passion and your zeal for life? There are still so many people today isolating in their homes, many who have not yet gone back into the workplace. They're stuck. And these are definitely scary times, but hang on, okay? Hang on if you feel like your heart is growing cold. Because here's where we begin to jump into the inspirational part, okay? Jesus says that we should continually remain alert and watchful. But listen to this, because staying alert and watchful is not a static function. It's not like sitting frozen with fear on your couch with one eye fastened to the news and the other eye fastened to a security video monitor so that you will be able to catch the thief when he finally arrives to break into your house. That is not the life God has for us. Being alert and watchful requires us not to be passive, but to be active while we're being alert and watchful. And what exactly are we supposed to be doing? Well, Jesus, Jesus describes this clearly. I mean, it is clear in our parable today that's called, it's labeled, the wise and foolish servant. And I need to tell you, I've never heard anyone teach on this parable in the context of Matthew chapter 24, of all the terrible things described early in this chapter. In fact, since last October, when God kind of put this on my heart and opened my eyes to this parable, I've been asking pastors and others I know who are dedicated Bible teachers, and I've asked dozens of people. I've preached this message two times in Mexico. I asked the question, do you know how Matthew 24 ends? And not one single person has been able to tell me how it ends. Oh, when I ask the question, they all say something like, I, I don't know, like, are we supposed to run to the hills? No, we're supposed to keep, keep watch. We're supposed to keep watch, right? Or something else. And I say, yes, that's in the chapter, but that's not how the chapter ends. And I truly believe that this section is like one of those Bible mysteries, you know, that is kept hidden from our eyes only to be revealed in God's perfect timing. Just like Paul once said when he was talking about um, the Gentiles coming to faith, he said, I, I tell you, it's a mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations and now being revealed to God's people. I think it's like that. And I'm convinced that for some reason, in God's infinite wisdom, God wants this parable to be unveiled for such a time as this. So you ready to hear what it says? Because it's there. And now remember, it's been here all along, but for some reason it seems that most people have missed it. 
At least they have missed the context with the rest of Matthew 24. So please don't miss it now. Here it is. It's really simple. Matthew 24, this is verse 45 through 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at their proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. That master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of and he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. I don't know how that is. Like he's in pieces now. But okay. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now as I have mentioned in previous passages, you got to know that extreme teaching like this, extreme language, particularly in this parable, is a form of rabbinic teaching. It's a, it's, it, it, I said it a couple weeks ago. It's like when Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He doesn't mean to cut it off. He's underscoring the importance of the teaching. And that's what, that's what this is. Jesus underscoring how important it is, right? And so we want to make sure that we get this right, not because we are afraid of being cut up into little pieces, but because it's the best way to live our lives, especially when the wills of the world are coming off. And let's start first by acknowledging that this is not the first time the Bible gives us a metaphor like this one, where God is described as a master who goes away for a long time and leaves his servant in charge of his household. It really began in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? Where God finished creating the universe in six days and then began to take a very long sabbatical on the seventh day, he says to Adam and Eve that in his absence, and he's saying it to us by extension, you guys take it from here. I'm done creating. You are now the architects and builders of my kingdom here on earth. Let's see if you can build a world that reflects who I am. One that reflects my heart. That reflects my unconditional and radical love. A world with beauty and kindness and compassion for every living creature. One that respects and values all of my creation. I'm looking for you to build a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And I've said this so many times from up here that we should probably ask the question, if we're supposed to do God's will here like it is in heaven, we should ask the question, well, what does that look like in heaven? And we can imagine that in heaven, God's will is that everyone has a roof over their head. No one goes to bed hungry, ever. There's no displaced refugees or immigrants. No one is mistreated or abused or trafficked or cheated on. Everyone is treated with respect and kindness and compassion all the time, forever. And there are many other times throughout the biblical story, like here in Matthew 24, where God reminds us that we are all his servants and that our main job is to build a kingdom here on earth 
that follows the same blueprints of the kingdom of heaven. And that we're always supposed to keep before us how important it is to remember that one day, one day God will end his sabbatical and will return to rule and reign here in person forever. But until that time arrives, he expects us to be caring for his household, meaning the world and everyone in it, the same way that he would care for them if he was here himself. Feeding the other servants at the proper time is another metaphor for ensuring that everyone on this planet is well cared for on a daily basis. And that is exactly what we're supposed to be doing while we're staying alert and watchful so that we won't be caught off guard when Messiah returns. And because of what's taking in the, in the place in the world right now, and I'm not saying we're in the times that Jesus talked about, but I think you have to admit something weird is going on. We can't get out of this, at least not yet. And because of all this stuff going on, the world needs us to show up this way more than ever. To bring light into darkness. Offering hope instead of despair. Courage instead of fear and anxiety. Prayer instead of powerlessness. And of course, it's totally understandable. It's easy to become fearful with all that's happening in the world today. But God has given us faith. Faith overshadows fear. At least it's supposed to. And faith is what can give us the courage to run toward trouble when everyone else is running away from it. Just like Eric Talley did last year at King Supers, less than a half a mile away. Because as a strong follower of Jesus, when those mass shootings began at King Supers, he knew that his life on earth was only temporary and that a better life awaited him. And I believe that right now during these troubling times, whether they continue to increase or whether they eventually diminish, God is looking for strong men and women of faith who will live their lives fearlessly by running toward the people who are in danger rather than away from them. He's looking for people who will press in rather than isolate. Because you too know well, you'll be spending eternity. Why? Because not only is this the most purposeful and meaningful way to live our lives, it's also what the world needs from us during times of trouble. And more importantly, it's what God wants to find us doing when he comes back. I heard this quote. It says, fear doesn't stop death. Fear stops life. Are you afraid of dying? Fear doesn't stop death. It stops living. It paralyzes you. 
What can faith do? It can move mountains. This is why God asked Joshua when he, he told him to take the Israelites now into a land filled with giants. But he says to him in Joshua, Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. When he asked Moses to go to Pharaoh, and Moses said, send Aaron. Moses said, no, you're the guy. And what did he say to God? Will you go with me? Because if you go with me, I'll go. And God was with him. And he's with you. He's Emmanuel. He's the God with us. Okay, I want to finish up real quick by sharing the three parables that follow this one. You say, well, we're at the end of chapter 24. Well, chapter 25 is a continuation of the question that the disciples asked in the first verse of Matthew 24. What's it going to be like just before you come back? And so he gives a little bit more detail about what we should be doing. And he gives three parables. I'm not going to read them to you. You can read them later on. Um, but the first one is what's called the parable of the ten virgins. You know, it's a story of this bride who um, is, is, is waiting for her groom to come back from his city to take her back to his father's house and, and they'll con consummate the marriage in the chuppah. That's what the bridal chamber, that's the Hebrew word for the bridal chamber, chuppah. If you've ever got married under a chuppah, that's where that comes from, the bridal chamber. But you're not going to do anything like that at your ceremony. That's, that's over with, okay. You don't have the pressure of the whole town waiting for that to happen. <laughs> When he goes back, he comes, you know, the, the, the father and the, and the son come and they make a, a contract uh, with the bride's family. They, give, they have a dowry, you know. Uh, they call the bride price and, they, you know, I'll give you 25 chickens and two goats. Deal. Okay, and then the, the son goes back to the father's house because that's where he lives. And his job is to get the bridal chamber ready and it's up to the father to send them back. It could take up to a year. So the bride's not going to want to wear a wedding dress for a year. So she concocts this plan. She'll get her 10 friends to go out and wait. And they, they bring their lamps with them, right? You know the story. All 10 of them fall asleep. All 10 fall asleep. Are you connecting to this to Matthew 24? You're going to be caught off guard. They all 10 fall asleep. But five still have enough oil in their lamps to turn them on. The oil is the Holy Spirit that, that, that Jesus is saying, stay connected to the Holy Spirit. He is your lifeline. He is who's going to lead you and guide you and direct you. And then the second parable is the parable of the talents, right? Remember, this, the, a man gives three people different talents, and one guy buries it, the other two invest it. And the whole point of that is to use the gifts that God has given you. Don't bury them. Don't isolate. Get out there. Make some kind of investment. It doesn't matter how much of an investment. Make one with the gifts that God has given you. And for some of us, he's given us lots of gifts. Lots of talents, natural and supernatural. And then the last one is the parable of the least of these. Remember Jesus said, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. 
when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And the disciples, the, the people said, well, wait, wait, when were you ever thirsty? And when were you ever hungry? And when were you ever in prison? And when were you ever naked? And Jesus said, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, it's like doing it to me. And so the focus, the focus of our attention is on the most vulnerable of people on this planet. That's why we have a justice ministry here. Is this making sense? Oop, I see one head. Okay, good. So let me end with one more passage. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, which I think is a passage for today. And it says this. And the worship team can start making their way up here. Let us consider... How we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That word spur means to agitate, like provoke, like love and good deeds. Loving, okay, okay, I get it, okay. Because that's what we're supposed to be doing love and good deeds, love and good deeds, love and good deeds. And listen to this not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing is that not a passage for today but encouraging one another you know, you know what the word encourage means it literally means to give courage but give courage to one another and here the final part is what I think makes it for today and all the more as you see the day, capital D, the day approaching. What day is he talking about? The last days. So I'd like you just, just to turn and look at each other. Just you turn your heads, those of you in front, look back. I just want you to know this is a courage factory. And you are all employees of this business of giving courage to one another and provoking each other on towards love and good deeds in the face of trouble, particularly because it's scary out there. It's a scary world. So let's stand up. And I'd actually like you to turn around and just look at the front range mountains there. Some of you can probably see the continental divide. Psalm 121 is, is one of my favorite Psalms and it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills You see the hills? Some translators say mountains, but there's only hills in Israel. Okay. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Where does it come from? My help comes from the Lord 
the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your hope, your foot slip. He who watches over you will never fall asleep. He never will fall asleep. Anything that happens in our lives is under God's watch. He doesn't fall asleep for a second. Nothing slips past his careful watch. If it happens, he either allowed it or caused it. There's no other choice. And when he says he won't let your foot slip, it doesn't mean you won't have trouble. He's saying, I got you. Even if you're falling, I've got you. He who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. This is our hope. So Lord, I just pray that you'd make us fearless, courageous, purveyors of hope. That we would show up, that we would run towards the danger, not away from it. If we're isolating to be released from that in the name of Jesus, to know where we're going to be spending eternity and to live with that reality every second of our lives, to step out in faith, to move mountains. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.